Welcome to Owned by Everyone, a series of eight podcasts recorded at an extraordinary two-day conference held at the end of March 2023. Our venue was the seminar room at the Cambridge Conservation Initiative in Cambridge University's David Attenborough Building. Speakers stayed at Pembroke College, which also hosted a conference dinner with our speaker, the leading campaigner for our waters, Fergal Sharkey. The subject which drew us together under a phrase come banner owned by everyone first unfurled in 1985 by Ted Hughes, poet laureate and a great environmental advocate and activist for his beloved rivers and their wild fish, is the wonder, plight and future of chalk streams. What made our discussions extraordinary? Well, those who spoke and the timing of what they said. Ninety women and men met after nearly three years of planning to bring an unprecedented range of experience, expertise and passion to a subject more and more of the public now know is as urgent as the chalk streams themselves are valuable. We aimed in the talks we gave and the discussion that followed for a clarity to match chalk stream water flowing at its best. So we wanted to share them with a much larger audience than our venue could accommodate. With everyone, in fact. With children of all ages. That is, anyone who can feel that wonder. With policymakers and those responsible for making decisions about our use and abuse of the hugely undervalued but life-giving element of water in each of our homes and in the Mother of Parliaments. We hope you find these talks refreshing, stimulating, enraging by turns, and ultimately that you want to act on what you hear. Thanks for listening. I will just now introduce Sean Leonard, who is director of the Wild Trout Trust, who is going to chair our next session. Good morning, all. With all due deference to brilliant speakers we've seen so far, you're about to see the very best. <laughs> We're putting the very best crew on the water and stroking the boat, starting us off. He doesn't want any introduction, is Terry Gifford. I will tell you what his talk is, which is Making and Unmaking Lines, Jeremy Hooker's Itch in Water Poems. Thanks very much, Sean. I came here to learn what a brilliant last session. Hey, woohoo! I thought the way in which a Hampshire poet writes about regression will be a very marginal to your interests, really. So I'll get on with this very quickly. But then I remembered last night hearing Go Fishing, the poem by Ted Hughes, that Hughes realized that the environmental crisis is a cultural crisis. And the crisis in the chalk streams is actually about people. And it's about attitudes towards water. So this Hampshire poet's representations of the Itchen Water might actually be part of our conversation here. A few streets away from here, an 18-year-old undergraduate was writing about stream soft murmuring. 
He knew the sound of soft murmuring streams from his hometown of Cockermouth. And at St. John's College in 1787, the undergraduate wrote the lines. Ah, let me inglorious court the shade and stream soft murmuring through the opening blade. The sound of a stream is translated here into a literative sound of poetry. Shade, stream, soft. Actually, William Wordsworth was undertaking an assignment to translate from the Latin some lines of Virgil's Georgics from 29 years BC, with which he was almost certainly already familiar from his education at Hawkshead Grammar School. For hundreds of years since the earliest medieval grammar schools, Virgil's poetry, and especially the Georgics, have been at the heart of the British education system. Perhaps the Irish poet Michael Longley is the last living survivor of the generation of Seamus Heaney and Ted Hughes, who were poets and fishermen, uh, raised on the compulsory Latin poetry of Virgil. I think Alice Oswald was probably not a recipient of compulsory Latin and chose classics herself. So Virgil himself distinguished between running streams, Regurai Amenes, I didn't do Latin at Cambridge Grammar School for Boys, where it was not compulsory, and therefore I could not study English at this university uh, amongst my choices at that time, where Latin was required. Uh, and, and rivers. This is the mill at Netherwalla, which now bears a blue plaque to Dermot Wilson. So, good old Virgil. The classic scholar, one Christian Pellisser, says... Virgil writes feelingly about rivers, although he also admits we do not have in Virgil any explicitness of a statement about his feelings for rivers, as we have in Wordsworth. Ellis points out that Virgil's references to rivers may be understood as generic tokens representing a literary tradition of writing about rivers, that even for him in 29 BC, included Hesiod, Lucretius, and Homer. So, in my making a line of poetry about rivers from the Greek of Hesiod, the Latin of Virgil, to Wordsworth, and now Longley, and Alice Oswald, I'm preparing the ground for the inclusion in this line of flow, the Itchin Water sequence of poems published in 1987 by Jeremy Hooker who has said that he had Wordsworth in mind in writing about the Itchin. In an interview last December in preparation for this conference, Jeremy has dialysis two times a week and was uh, very frail, but was very keen to talk about this poem sequence to me. He said it was Coleridge who had the idea of a poem sequence following a river from source to sea, but Wordsworth, who completed it in the River Dudden sonnet sequence. Born in Hampshire in 1941, 
Jerry Hooker told me, I have been a lover of streams and rivers since a boy growing up in the south of England when I fished with wet and dry fly on chalk streams with a passion at the age of 11 and continued even as a student. So I've known chalk streams all my life. In 1981 to 1983, Jerry Hooker was an Arts Council writing fellow at Winchester School of Art, where the itching flows through the grounds behind it. He said, I was asked to work with the artist Norman Aykroyd, who made a series of etchings from our walking the length of the itching, and this is the source of the itching from which they will have started, the length of the river, uh, walking, oh yes, and, and it, these poems were published in an expensive edition with my 10 poems. Later, with the poet Robert Wells, I walked the length of the river again over two days, sleeping out, which extended the poem sequence to the 30 poems in Master of the Leaping Gers, 1987. He added, we met no fishermen, Fishing on the Itchin was very expensive, but there were free sections where I fished. In this respect, compared with the test, the Itchin was more the common man's river. The river seemed to be in good condition, although it was probably degrading more than I realized. In his most recent essay collection, published in 2017, Jeremy Hooker writes, The idea I developed at this time was the poetry should be written not about, but from place. Hence these two immersions in the physical presence of the chalk stream, these two journeys for all of its length, sleeping on the ground of its banks, learning more, he wrote in his essay titled a Poem Like a Place, of its quick continuous changes and deep historical passages. The first poem in this sequence is a dedicatory poem for Winchester School of Art. It sets out the challenge of this project for the poet to catch the nature of the river in words which require a dissolution of self. We heard Ted Hughes's word dematerialize in Go Fishing last night a dissolution of a self such as a fisherman might achieve in his intense focus upon the nuances of the living water and its more than human depths. It is a reciprocal relationship and attempting to find the right words, even a word alive with light. There's a sense of giving back to the river in this sequence. So these are the things that I'm asking you to look out for in the poem that I'm about to give you. Here's the poem that I characterize as making and unmaking lines as the poet unmakes his sense of self in order to remake the river in lines of poetry. He's so open to the river that he allows his self-awareness to be dashed away by it. When I stand dully, slopping at the dam of self, and the river dashes it away. May I give back of all the river gives, one ripple or one wave, one chalky gay grain, or in a word alive with light, one drop in which nature shines. So what began as dully slopping at a dam ends with an evocation of the shining inner nature of the mystery of the river. 
hopefully caught by poetic language in one drop, one word alive in which its nature shines. It's an incantatory poem, an artistic prayer, beginning May I, that does not overreach with descriptive drowning. Simple verbs and unadorned nouns speak for themselves. In typical hooker style, its simplicity betokens its sincerity. Actually, I've taken the words making and unmaking lines from the poem at Ovington, where the poet stands on a bridge, this bridge, with his friend and fellow artist in residence at Winchester School of Art, the sculptor Lee Grandjean, talking about the manner in which the water flows beneath them. Of course, the sculptor speaks with his hands, but once more, in giving close attention to the water and its bird and insect life, the poet would let all go again. At Ovington, the Lee Grandjean sculptor, you would make a form that contains, which your hand molds as we talk, creating a body between us in the air. Below, the broad full river glides hypnotically, silver, green and dark. Here wind meets light and water, and the current at each instant finds its bed erupting over shoals of weed, sliding through a lucid gravel run, continually making and unmaking lines. As in my mind, I catch and loose its images, and about our heads, swifts hawking for mayfly, unerringly, explosively glide. I would let all go again, saying, it is perfect, without us but we meet here we share words and your shaping hand the flow the brute and graceful wings and our feet beat solidly on the bridge it would be tempting to cast this moment of insight it is perfect without us as a transcendent epiphany, one of Wordsworth's spots of time, in which all is suspended in a Damascene moment, when all sense of self and context fade away. But Hooker brings the reader back to the material present and its human importance, the meeting and sharing between two people of what they are witnessing, their need to convey this to each other in images with words and hands. And the last line grounds the moment. Our feet beat solidly on the bridge. The emphasis is on the verb, beat, beat solidly. And primary school readers of this poem will spot the onomatopoeia of feet, beat. But there's no escaping the fact that this poem is about a bridge between two friends and between them and the materiality of the river, the flow of which is both graceful and brutally powerful in the shaping of its silver, green, and dark wings. The words brute and dark resist any romantic idealization of the river, just as it is resisted in the acceptance of its perfection in its material self. The poem decenters the human, but also accepts the shared significance 
of this decentering for these two human communicators. When Hooker says that his poetry is seeking a way of speaking beyond the isolated self as a voice of community, he's thinking of community in ecological terms, a poetry that sought to see the true relation between things. Indeed, the presence of human history and human culture in the natural environment is the theme of this sequence of poems, as it is in all Hooker's poetry. He told me, I call my interest in poetry to be one of ground, by which I mean the soil, the elements of place, but also its history. And so by ground, I refer to the total environment, its nature, and culture. One consequence of thinking of place as having intertwined material, historical, and cultural meanings is to write in poetic sequences. In his essay on the notion of ground, Hooker writes, one effect of thinking about poetry as in a sense voicing the life of a place is that I conceive my work in terms of sequences. So there are poems in this Itchin Water sequence about Cheriton Longbarrow, about a Civil War battlefield, about a dying avenue of trees planted as an approach to the big house at Abington, about a dream of the river, a gleam, a spirit of another world that was apparently recorded in the preface of the poems of William Collins published in 1746. Uh, there's a poem here called The Diver, about William Walker, who between 1906 and 1911 worked below the river level on the foundations of Winchester Cathedral to save it from collapse. And there's a poem for the Itchin Navigation, which begins, what I love is the fact of it, a channel kept open, shipping stone for the cathedral, blue Cornish slates, coal from Woodville to Blackbridge Wharf, a channel used disused, restored, until the last barge passed under the railway bridge, now abandoned, framing water that is going nowhere, but silts with passages the colour of stone dust. The poet celebrates the grey water settling back to the shape of slow-working journeys during a thousand years. In this lower river, Booker does not ignore the rubbish of prams and wheels dumped in the dam at Woodmill, where the river is held back. The quick chalk stream is almost killed. So the poet reaches the tidal port, which typically he celebrates uh, in the Roman port of Clausentum in the poem of that name. This town is thought to have been located inside a sharp bend of the River Itchen, where now there's a suburb of Southampton. So it's a secretive location. I have walked from purest dry fly stream to ramshackle tidal reach, used and reused in commerce with the sea. And at last, secretive at the heart of the city, the Roman port. Here again is that sense of making and unmaking in used and disused and reused, which now refers to the human use of the river rather than the movement of the water in the dry fly green. So that word purist, which Ted Hughes was to use in the title of his poem, Be a Dry Fly Purist, 
is contrasted with this lower ramshackle tidal reach. The last poem in the sequence is called Images at the River's Mouth, and it concludes with an image of unity that underlies the ongoing dynamics of making and unmaking. Imagine that when at each instant the river enters the sea, nothing is lost, but where the traveler looking back through his past sees the spire of St. Michael's sink vaguely behind a skyline of cranes, the itchin is one from source to mouth, retaining each grain, each wave that forms even as it breaks. So forms even as it breaks, a paradox that in the sequence's last line echoes used and reused, disused, restored, and the chalk stream continually making and unmaking lines. Booker has written about his conviction that poetry is both image-making and image-breaking, meaning that the poet needs to be iconoclastic towards his or her own work, knowing that every image is provisional and reality larger, stranger, more mysterious than any word or image. So too, Jeremy Hooker's Itching Water sequence takes its place in the making and unmaking of lines of poetry about rivers that flow through European poetry from the ancient Greek of Hesiod via the Latin of Virgil, the River Dudden sequence of Wordsworth, and the more recent poetry of Heaney and Hughes. What Hooker gives us is both a displacement of the human self in the face of the river's wondrous material presence and a celebration of human culture's historical engagement with the river. He admits that in 1987, he was unaware of some of the consequences of human engagements in the unmaking of the purest dry fly stream. To today's readers, his feeling that it is perfect without us cannot avoid carrying a heavy irony. Well, in a seamless juxtaposition, we move to a spirit of another world, which is case law. <laughs> so, um, our next speaker is Carol Day, who's worked in the environmental sector for over 35 years. I'll jump to the quick. She's listed in the 22 report power list and the lawyer's 2023 Fox 100 list. Harold Day, her talk is Water and the Law, Current Cases and New Opportunities. Thank you. I do feel like apologising, actually. I'm so sorry you've got <laughs> turgid talk after what you've just had, which was just absolutely amazing. And I have to say, I thoroughly enjoyed the first session as well. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't come yesterday. I was actually in court, and so I missed, obviously, Mr. Holman, really interesting speakers. And I really love this morning session as well. And it's lovely to see such a broad diversity of topics and speakers and, and inspirational material. Right. OK, yes, thank you very much for that uh, kind introduction. I'm very pleased to be here. Pleased to be asked by Wildfish and the Cambridge Conservation Initiative. What I'm going to do is a talk of two parts. Um, I actually have two part-time roles. I work part-time for um, Blue Day, a law firm. And I work part-time as an environmental consultant for the RSPB. So it's a talk of two halves and a kind of talk of two roles, really. What I'm going to do, and I think Nick, when he first asked me to, to speak at this conference, he said, would you be able to talk about chalk streams and the law? I thought it would be a little bit too much. 
Um, but what I've tried to do is take two cases, which I think will be of interest to people. I think many of you will have heard about them, but I think for those of you who won't, hopefully it will be quite interesting to hear. The first is a case, it's not a lead A case actually, but the first is a decided case from last year, 2022, that's Harris and the Environment Agency. And the second case is a case that we just uh, launched on the heart of an organisation called River Action, some of you will know, um, and that again is unfortunately against the Environment Agency, they're going to get a bit of a bash here, I'm afraid. I'm then going to move hats, I'm going to move to completely the other end of the spectrum, I'm going to talk about formulations of new law, and so a project that I'm involved with for Wildlife and Countryside Link, which is about drafting a new environmental rights bill, uh, which will give hopefully a right to a clean and healthy environment. So, so I'll start off with Harris and the Environment Agency. I'm sure many of you know about this case. Uh, it's centered on Catfield Fen, which is an SSSI, which forms part of the Broads SAC. It's one of 28 SSSIs that makes up that special area of conservation. And it also forms part of the Broadland Special Protection Area, again, one of 25 SSSIs that makes that up. And it's also a Ramsar site. Now, it's designated as a special area of conservation on the basis of two priority habitats on the Habitats Directive, calcareous fens and alluvial forests. And it's classified as an SPA on the basis of a number of different bird species, but including things like the bittern, the rough and the marsh harrier. Now, it suffers from typical sort of triple whammy, really, of low annual rainfall, frequent drought and high levels of groundwater abstraction. We've heard about that this morning to feed the neighbouring fruit and vegetable businesses in the Broadlands. Now, the case was bought by Mr and Mrs Harris, who actually live on Catfield Fen. I think they, they own it. They live in Catfield Hall. And they've been concerned for many years about the levels of water abstraction on the Norfolk Broads. And they were concerned in particular about a decision that the Environment Agency had taken to limit its investigation into some 240 abstraction licenses that were operating across the broads. And that investigation had been limited down to just three SSSIs, Ant Broads and Marshes, Old Fen Broads and Broad And the important point to make there, or to flag, is that the Environment Agency is the only public body that has the powers under the Water Resources Act, under Section 52 and 50, Section 53, to revoke those water abstraction licenses. So, Mr. and Mrs. Harris were so concerned that on the basis of that decision by the Environment Agency, they decided to issue proceedings for judicial review. That case was given permission by Mr. Justice Chamberlain. The basically is to go through the grounds of the case first of all. Mr. and Mrs. Harris's case was the Environment Agency was acting in breach of Article 6.2 of the Habitats Directive. It's a really important provision. Many of you will be aware of it. What it seeks to do is to prevent the deterioration of natural habitats and the disturbance of natural species. Now, Article 6.2 has effect in UK law by virtue of Article 9.3, so it's really dry, of habitats regulations. And that requires the Environment Agency to have regard to the Habitats Directive. Now, irrespective of Regulation 9.3, which is the domestic piece of legislation, Mr. and Mrs. Harris argued that, regulate, that, that Article 6.2 had direct effect in law, so it didn't really matter that the uh, Habitats Directive had been implemented by way of a national piece of legislation. They were argued that the provision of the, the, provision of the Habitats Directive was actually nationally uh, enforced. And finally, they also held that the Environment Agency's decision not to look at the full scope of the 240 licences was irrational in law. Now, the Environment Agency said they accepted that it did need to have regard to Article 6.2, but it maintained that it had done so in limiting that investigation to the impact on just three SSIs. 
They also disputed that Article 6.2 had direct effect in domestic law and said they weren't acting irrationally. And one of the reasons they said they weren't acting irrationally was because they had very limited resources. And so therefore it was reasonable to limit their investigation into just those three SSSIs. So as I say, permission for judicial review was granted by Justice Chamberlain. The case went to a substantive hearing and Mr Justice Johnson handed down his judgment in September of last year. He found that the Environment Agency had breached Article 6.2 of the Habitats Directive and therefore Regulation 9.3 of the Habitats Regulations. And he also held that they had acted irrationally in deciding to limit the investigation to just those three SSSIs when they were potentially aware that obviously a much wider area of the Broads SAC was impacted. Now, there are a number of really important points that arose from that judgment. The first was the ongoing enforceability of Article 6, 2 and 3 of the Habitats Directive post-Brexit. And the High Court held that Article 6, 2 has continuing direct effect, so stands independently of the Habitats regulations. It's directly enforceable by domestic courts against public bodies. So even if, the, uh, if Parliament was to amend the Habitats regulations, we could still rely on Article 6, 2 before our domestic courts. And of course, that's really important in the context of some of the weakening of legislation that we're seeing at the moment through the retained EU law bill. Second key point, really important, providing some clarity on the meaning of the legal duty on public bodies under Regulation 9.3 of the Habitats Directive. Now, as you remember, I mentioned that the duty was to have regard to the requirements of the Habitats Directive in the Environment Agency exercising their functions. Now, normally the wording have regard to is quite weak. It normally means they'll consider it, they'll take it into account, but they can depart from it if they've got a good reason to do so. But here, in fact, the judge said there were special circumstances which meant that public duty was much stronger. He said because the duty is to have regard to the requirements of the directive and those requirements are mandatory. He also said the Environment Agency is the only public body that was acting in its space. They're the only public body that could come in and, and review the abstraction licenses. There was no other public body that could do that. So in this situation, have regard to effectively meant must discharge the requirements of the directive. Now, the third key point is that it's not acceptable for the public body to wait until there's actually damage on the site before they step in and act. If there's a risk of damage and it's necessary for the public body to take sufficiently robust remedial steps to make sure that damage doesn't occur. And of course, that, that's the precautionary principle. That's what it really means. And they held that in this case, the Environment Agency had not taken sufficient steps to avert the danger of damage to the SAC. Fourth key point, really important one, it's not a justifiable reason for a public body to cite lack of resources as a reason for not implementing Article 6.2. What a public body has is discretion as to how it does that. It could you know, choose to cut that cake in many different ways, but it can't say that we don't have any money and we simply can't do it. So that's a really important point. And then fifthly, just a few important clarifications to, to end with really, that the Habitats regulations continue to have, uh, we all know this, uh, effect in domestic law post-Brexit, that the Habitats regulations must be interpreted in accordance with retained, i.e. pre-Brexit case law, and principles of EU law, and one of those such principles was the precautionary principle. So it's a really important case. It's going to be relied on a lot by different uh, organisations and individuals bringing cases. We certainly haven't heard the last of that one. And I'm going to talk now about a case where those principles have in fact been applied. So this case, River Action and the Environment Agency, it was only issued earlier this month. 
And I don't need to tell anybody in the room about the importance of the River Wye. You've obviously heard a lot about that yesterday. You all know about it. And you all know about the problems that the Wye is facing and the particularly bad algal blooms that mean that the River Wye is not at favourable conservation status under the Habitats Directive. In fact, it's now classified as unfavourable or bad. Now, we all know the major contributor to those algal blooms is the spreading of organic manure, artificial fertiliser, much of which comes from the chicken industry that is inherent within the Wye Valley. And this bloom obviously giving rise to agricultural diffuse pollution, where excess nitrogen, in particular phosphorus, arising from the manure spreading on the land abutting the Y, is causing a real problem in the Y. And there was a recent study done by the Refocus Group, which showed that 60 to 70% of the phosphorus load in the rivers is actually coming from agriculture. The relevant legal framework here is so dense, I'm sorry, the Reduction and Prevention of Agricultural Diffuse Pollution England Regulations 2018. You've probably heard of them as the Farming Rules for Water. I'm sure you're aware of them. And the point of the Farming Rules for Water is they seek to limit diffuse agricultural pollution by prohibiting or preventing applications of manure or fertiliser to farmland to ensure that they don't raise the nutrient levels above what is needed by the crop and the soil. And there's a number of really important provisions within those regulations. Regulation four, land managers must ensure that those applications don't exceed the needs of the crop or the soil. Regulation 11.1, anyone who fails to comply with that regulation is in breach of the regulation and commits an offence. Regulation 14 identifies the Environment Agency as the relevant public body with the function of enforcing the farming rules for water. Regulation 15 empowers DEFRA to issue statutory guidance on the subject. And Regulation 15.2 requires the Environment Agency to have regard to any guidance that is issued by DEFRA. And remember, because I mentioned, obviously, the wine is a special area of conservation as well. All of the requirements of Article 6.2 that we talked about in the Harris case and all of the implications of that judgment apply in this situation as well. Now, when we come to enforcement, the Environment Agency's draft position on their or their internal policy and their frequently asked questions states that applications of manure or fertilizers, which regulation for applies, should not exceed the needs of the crop or land as they are at the time of the application. That's the draft position internal advice. But you'll remember that the Environment Agency is subject to any guidance that's issued by DEFRA under regulation 14, the regulations, and they did actually issue such advice in March of 2022. Now, that DEPRA guidance allows land managers to have planned applications of manure and fertiliser that do not exceed the crop and the soil, but for nitrogen, that's over an annual cycle, and for phosphorus, it's where it doesn't increase the soil phosphorus index above target levels for the soil and crop over a rotation, which can be a number of years. So you have internal draft guidance saying that it has to be, that the, the application has to be considered in the context of the time of the application, and then you have some DEFRA statutory guidance saying that it can be considered over a much, much wider time period. And the adopted environment agency policy and frequently asked questions follows the DEFRA guidance. But you remember I mentioned that the habitat strip comes into play here. Uh, the environment agency is required to have regards to the requirements of the directive, but uh, the adopted EA policy and frequently asked questions make no reference to the habitats directive or the HABREGS of 2017. So what we have as a result is the Environment Agency unlawfully under-enforcing the farming rules for water and perpetuating the problem of nutrient runoff in the Y. 
Now, River Action had a long exchange of correspondence with the Environment Agency on this, and they issued a claim for judicial review earlier this month, and there are three grounds to that claim. The first is that the Environment Agency enforcement of the farming rules for water is based on an interpretation of the legislation that is erroneous. Secondly, that the Environment Agency is unlawfully fettering its own discretion by slavishly following the DEFRA guidance when it has got a good reason to depart from it. And ground three, that the Environment Agency is in breach of Regulation 9.3 of the Habitats Regulations because the enforcement policy does not have regard to the Habitats Directive in the way that it's exercising its functions to enforce the farming rules for water. So as I say, that case has just been issued. Um, the next stage in it is to receive the Environment Agency's Acknowledgement Service and Summary Grounds of Defence. So we expect that probably in the next uh, two to three weeks. I'm going to move on just very briefly now and finish off by talking about the other part of the project, which is now I'm now talking on behalf of my role within the RSPB. I work on access, access to environmental justice for them just one day a week. And in that capacity, I co-chair a group of Wildlife and Countryside Link. And we've been doing a lot of work for the last couple of years on the formulation of a new environmental rights bill. And the point of this, I don't need to tell anybody, biodiversity crisis, climate crisis. And I think people feel really let down by public bodies. They feel let down by sort of lack of enforcement and by a government that is actively promoting schemes from coal mines in Cumbria and undermining our nature conservation protections. So what we are looking to do is create an environmental rights bill that has at the heart of it a legal right to a, a clean and healthy environment to everybody and to strengthen our ability as citizens, individuals, NGOs, to bring cases to enforce that central right. Now, this isn't new. There was a United Nations resolution recognising the human rights to a clean and healthy environment that was passed in July of last year, and the government endorsed that. And that was uh, subsequently then underpinned the global biodiversity framework that was agreed at COP15 in December last year. The Environmental Rights Bill, the central part of it, is to implement uh, something called the UNEC Aarhus Convention, International Convention, which the UK ratified in 2005, but only ever partly implemented. As I say, the central part of it will be this legal rights for clean and healthy environment. And it'll be enforced in a number of different ways, but principally around a new duty on public bodies to act in a way that's consistent with the rights for a clean and healthy environment. And that will include a number of different things. In addition to that central right, a key part of the bill will be to actually implement what we call the three pillars of the Aarhus Convention, which is the right to know, your right of access to information. We all use environmental impact in information regulations and FOIA requests in our day-to-day -day work. The right of public participation in decision-making, in planning process, in EIA, and the right of access to environmental justice. Now, those three pillars have been implemented to a lesser or greater extent. Some of it's very good. I would say the right to know we have pretty good EIR regulations and we can get hold of information. It takes a long time. They're not bad. Other parts of those pillars, things like particip public participation, the UK has not implemented Article 8 at yeah. all. That is the public's right to get involved in the drawing up of new legislation. It's practiced for the government to consult us about that, but it's not required in law. And it should be as a result of that international convention and rights of access to environmental justice. There are still huge problems around how expensive legal action is which is partly implemented, but not wholly. So the whole point of this really is to promote environmental democracy, transparency, and to ensure that the UK meets its, its uh, environmental obligations and commitments. Another just small, interesting bit of it uh, is to give rights to environmental defenders. And when the convention was being drafted and ratified, we all thought this was something that would apply in Ukraine or Belarus, you know, where environmental defenders are persecuted. 
And in fact, it's just as relevant here to us now in the UK as it is anywhere else. And there's a small part of the convention, Article 3.8, which seeks to protect environmental defenders from persecution and harassment. And that's another key part of the bill. So the bill's been drafted by two barristers instructed by Wildlife and Countryside Link. It's forming one of Wildlife Link's five manifesto asks for 2030. It's going to be launched in Parliament in June 2023. So lots more to come on that. Looking forward to telling people about it or if I've got more information, if anybody would like to know about it. Anyway, so I know it was really bright. There's some nice pictures to at least look at. <laughs> mm. Thank you, Carol. My, my third speaker is a long-term friend who I know is quite nervous. So... I thought I'd focus his mind a little bit by just carrying the red card from the outset. Um, <laughs> this is Stuart McTeer. So growing up on the mean monochrome streets of 1960s North London, I'm reading this verbatim because it's rather pretty, was hardly a well-trodden path for a wannabe riverkeeper. But from Stuart's fledgling Finchley Pond dipping days, a career in fishy conservation, today managing 25 miles of Chalkstream across Hampshire and Wiltshire, Time has not diminished his fascinated, watery gaze, and I can vouch for that. So this is Future Fishing with Stuart McTeer. Okay, so, yeah, Future Fishing is a subject for 20 minutes. Okay, I'm head keeper of one of the oldest angling organisations in the country, the Piscatorial Society, where, in fact, Ted Hughes visited we were established in 1836. We now manage 25 miles of chalk stream across Wiltshire. And, um, okay, so, um, yeah, I work at the Piscatorial Society, established in 1836. Now, a bit like the Avon, Avon Minnow's Twitter account, I, I need to have a dis disclaimer in here. I have to state that these are my views, not necessarily those of my employer or the rest of the shoal. <laughs> and although I have a fisheries career spanning 45 years, I still feel like the minnow around here. So if I do freeze, I dry up. It's not because I've messed up. It's because I've caught sight of one of the whoppers <laughs> in this pool, eyeing me, ready to dry. So if I can keep my head down, <laughs> it's a huge honour to be here um, as a lifelong member of the Salmon and Trout Association. I joined originally in 19. 75 as a junior after watching a BBC animal magic program that featured an S&TA children's fishing course, one of which I later attended. In fact, without the S&TA, I might not be here today. A London branch meeting led to Ashmere Fisheries and my first job with Jean Howman. At this point, the first an only lady chairperson of the Salmon and Trout Association. Hopefully this will change with the rebrand. We have no lady river keepers either that I know of. Jean was an amazing person for a first boss. Her energy and enthusiasm were infectious. Jean provided me with a safe pathway house in Shepparton between the city and the country. The hierarchy within fisheries management is still pale, male and stale. 
huge challenge for everybody here to change, along with the demographic. Angling is sadly a largely white male activity. I must acknowledge Nick Meesham's courage, firstly, for driving the name change and direction of rebranding of wild fish, but almost more significantly, being brave enough to suggest that I speak today. <laughs> Nick joked that he wanted my working class input into <laughs> which tickled me and reminded me of an episode from my youth discussing class in a sticky carpeted London public house. My face had a brush with a pint glass. My working class credentials clearly not up to scratch in that neck of the woods. <laughs> I'm still confused a bit by my class as a riverkeeper, a capped off in surf, a son of the soil, perhaps considered in some circles to have hailed from the underclass, crawled from under a stream bed stone, something smart rivers may look at in wonderment. <laughs> Charles Kingsley, ironically, had a rather patronising slant on riverkeepers. He saw a keeper as a person whose social scale needed a lift with the addition of a cigar in his life. <laughs> I know my place. I've lived with the fishes, Charles, and I've spent my life staring, maybe narcissus-like, at and into water, trying to fathom that other dimension. A way of staring at and into water, Mark writes in The Catch, in the hope of seeing things our day jobs have no time for. My day job provides its wealth in seeing. Mark also mentions Ted Hughes's failure to catch an Irish trout on Mayfly. I've led a charmed life down with the fishes and even managed to catch one or two Irish trout on Mayfly to boot. I spent 10 years away with the fairies on Loch Sheelin in Ireland. Sheelin, translated from Irish, is fairy pool. It's an enchanted place with a loch that's had its pellucid waters tainted by industrial levels of porcine pollution. But nature can recover. I've witnessed it firsthand with Sheelin's fairies flying again. That's another story. As the Earl of Longford, Thomas Packenham, who lives locally to Sheelin, once said to me, when discussing Loch Sheelin, we're only talking shit. Living on Loch Sheelin 30 years ago, I would never have dreamt that the English chalk streams would be in a similar parallel state three decades on. So, where did all this fly fishing malarkey start for me? At the risk of playing top trumps, it was half a century ago this year. That makes it sound like a long time, but it's a mere blink of the eye, 50 fishing seasons. An old friend in Ireland insists fish catch us, it's not us catching them. Here's one I didn't catch. It's the one that caught me. It will be 50 years since this picture was taken. The hair may be a giveaway. <laughs> it was a truly transformative trout. I was a slow learner, slow to talk. Some would say I've been trying to catch up ever since. But I was an even slower reader. 
fly fishing unlocked and opened the reading floodgates for me. I have joked fly fishing was my misspent youth, my teenage rebellion. As a teenager growing up in North London with a punk rocking peer group, an escape for a wannabe riverkeeper was hardly a well-trodden path. I dreamed of a hardy rod as my caster to, to express myself. No Fender Telecaster guitar for me. My alternative friends edged towards the edgy side. I rubbed up against people who challenged my chosen career. Proto-protagonists questioning the morals of my fishy leanings, my torturing tendencies. It's taken a while to get to grips with these tendencies, only to read recently in The Catch that fishing was Ted Hughes's way of breathing. I've hooked up with some amazing people, none other so than our national treasure, Sir David Attenborough, who I've been lucky enough to meet on a couple of occasions when he filmed on our stretch of the Avon. In fact, some of the footage will be aired this Sunday, the 2nd of April, on the Wild Isle BBC series. When we first met, he left a lasting impression when I told him I fished. He said, so, you like putting cold steel into fish's mouths. If ever I question my lifetime of cruelty, that simple line delivered by Sir Dave's dulcet TV tones hit hard. <laughs> I struggle with what is the senseless torture <clears throat> of chalk stream stockfish, which after all are domesticated animals, particularly catching and releasing. Is it the ultimate cruel cat and mouse game? Are these fish nothing more than a consumer culture? commercialization of fishing I smart at the expression a blank day when describing a fishless day can ang anglers truly call themselves conservationists when catching and releasing the endangered iconic Atlantic salmon increasingly I find it awkward evicting trespassers paddlers wild swimmers youngsters fishing I hear the call for open access but fear there is a balance. People need to learn to leave no trace. Access during the winter months could certainly keep cormorants on the move. Cormorants supposedly a modern phenomena, but dear old Isaac Walton referenced them in The Complete Angler. Another modern phenomena, the resurgent otter predation, the natural balance is sadly not seen like this by many anglers. Although I know otters get bad press, within angling circles. I also know their diet is Catholic. Coots being high on their menu, along with pike, miller's thumbs, invasive crayfish, and apparently cormorants. They prey on easy eats. Enlightenment is the only way forward, but I fear diversity, open access, and change is a long way off. Inclusion instead of exclusion will help the cause. How sad it was to see Sam Smith mocked for wanting to be a fisher then, and how shocking that the UK is the least effective of all the G7 countries at protecting nature and one of the least biodiverse of that group. I'm not offering solutions here, but hopefully creating some questions. I have no crystal ball, maybe just a snow globe to shake a little. Indeed, there's a minnow around here. It would be easy to get bogged down in the larger, scarier picture 
I'll let the bigger fish in the pool take on the government, the water companies, farming, etc., etc. It's what we as river keepers and anglers can achieve on the ground that can make a small but not insignificant difference to the fishy environment we care about during our short lives on terra firma. We do have the power to make the difference with a light touch. Education is a must. Gentle cajoling for people have yet to spy the light, landowners, keepers, anglers, and the wider public. As river keepers, we can prioritise the workload over the last century, mechanisation has, if anything, overcomplicated a river keeper's life to the detriment of the river's life. I straddle a couple of generations of keepers, first stepping foot into the itching with a sigh in hand at the end of the 1970s. I felt like the minnow in the stream caught mid-current with no natural habitat to hide in, a bit like the middle test today. Marginal and in-stream habitat management is so simple, and yet why the zealous over-management? Are these the early days of a revolution in habitat management? I hope so. I've spent decades working at the coalface, a face that's still delivering mysteries. Research is key. At this point, we're still just scratching the surface. A riverkeeping acquaintance of mine recently completed a charity walk of the entire length of the river test. He said the best beats were the wild, untended stretches, funnily enough. So, why do we overmanage? For ease of fishing, I fear. Large woody debris is so important on many levels, but still resisted by some. I've been installing it with enthusiasm over the last couple of decades. Its benefits are huge, a huge part of the natural protocol. So, come on down, beavers. And from ecosystems engineers to civil engineering work, with stage zero, recreating and reconnecting the floodplain. We're playing God now, but we are moving away from the alternative uses from yesteryear, putting water back into the floodplain, away from canalisation. Is river keeping just playing, playing at a career for people who have never grown up? Working for people who have never grown up, maybe. <laughs> More than ever, we need to grow up fast. Our chalk streams are quite literally running through our fingers. We can arrest and stem the flow, but we need to act. Anthropogenic interference is nothing new. Man has meddled with chalk streams through the millennia, ever since the Romans came to town. Milling turbines, the water meadow system, agriculture, aquaculture, abstraction, angling, climate change, pollution, eagering, is faux wilding just more messy? If I were a chalk stream, I think I'd need therapy. They've been roundly abused. Until we embrace and explore science driven ideas, including beavers, and stop exploiting every last inch of the river for angling purposes, and get involved with catchment-based projects, I don't believe we can achieve as much as we could if we collaborated, particularly with nature. Even if we have an endless supply of clean water overnight, you need diverse habitats for a healthy riverine ecosystem. The Piscatorial Society stopped culling pike years ago. We now embrace them as a great sporting fish, just as we did with grayling years before. But both of these species in my lifetime have been and still are persecuted on the chalk streams. I'm old enough to know that grayling on the upper itching are a modern addition 
Why try and eradicate them from one place and then stop them where they're not indigenous? We have also removed that. Eel traps on the chalk streams have been responsible for the slaughter of untold tonnages of eels, which can hardly have helped their plight. And yet the very people removing the eels were the very people who complained of their mind. I'm more aware of angling ethics than ever before. There's some crazy research out there. Jonathan Balcom's What a Fish Knows is a page and head turner. With age, I've followed the classic cliche path to enlightenment and now fish less. Is salmon fishing on chalk streams for an endangered species sustainable? Should anglers show restraint? Should we follow the Irish model of closing fisheries where salmon are under pressure? If salmon have made it back to the river and are ready to spawn, why endanger their lives one last time for a grip and grin shot? Stephen McKenzie at the last conference highlighted their fragility when being played and returned to the water. Is the EA's report about the demise of salmon in the UK through climate change in the next 60 years a reason for not catching one last salmon? Large numbers of people put pressure on fish. How do we cut numbers down without making chalk streams even more exclusive? Over the years, I've met too many anglers who were drowning in their nostalgia. I believe at this point, we still have rivers that are half full, not half empty. We still have patches of fly. Let's be species specific before we talk about steep declines of river fly. In a summer on the test, written by J.W. Hills, he wrote of perceived declines a hundred years ago. I can't believe we rely on the oxymoronic anecdotal evidence of anglers. Since when did they tell the truth? (laughs) (laughs) At last, with smart rivers, we have a good mix of citizen science and professional scientists providing irrefutable data. We now fish for a variety of wild fish on our chalk streams, a trend that speaks volumes about the diversity and density of these species, populations that could be improved further. Do we really want to continue stocking, a practice proven to suppress wild stock? We can fish in a more restrained, less exploitative way, sight fishing slowly in the old traditional manner, managing expectations, catching one or two fish per session, if lucky, and always returning fish quickly. I heard Fergal Sharkey say recently that we could win the water quality battle. So the fishing fraternity needs to get its house in order to fully benefit. So Colombo, the TV detective, always had just one last question. So I have just one last question. Do we want to be the generation that kills the last chalk stream dodo? The iconic Atlantic salmon, one of the reasons the southern chalk streams have their protected status. I believe the Hampshire Avon portmanteau salmon gene pool has already been damaged, not helped by angling. Do we want to finish them off? Or do we try and leave our rivers in a better shape than we were left them in? This is Minari, an Amazonian shaman who I fished with on the Avon. Indigenous people could teach us a thing or two about giving back to nature and sustainability, I'm sure. Future fishing, 
Hashtag think small. Pull up Terry, Carol, Stuart for questions. Who would like to start? Oh, well done, Mark, you can. It's not really a question, but I was deeply moved, deeply moved by all three of your presentations because, and I was led to think, this is just off the top of the head, and I'm not going to quote it, but I found it. In 1873, Walter Pater published Studies in the Renaissance, and the conclusion to that reflects on a truth that Heraclitus recognised, you can never step into the same river twice, that Barry Cook, Irish artist, environmentalist, who after dinner tonight, I want to invite people back to my study to show talking about the eutrophication of Sheelin, Loch Sheelin. But Peter said, we to think of our modern state of thoughts, minds, ideas, think of being adrift in summer heat on a river. And our life is in flux. Our ideas, our feelings are in flux. And he said that made it all the more we should burn with a hard gem-like flame. And it seems to me environmental democracy, environmental justice, readings of romantic empathy in river poems, thinking of our duty and our love for rivers as fishermen and the challenges they face and make us face, compels us all to burn with a hard gen-like flame in defending what we love. So, as a comment, thank you all. And we like to respond to yeah. that. Could I just say something? Oh, Mark, just listening to you, points I just wanted to make and try and draw a direct line between Terry and Carol and between the language of Jeremy and the language that Carol stole and described as dry, it is the precision of the poetry and the precision of the legal language which is so connected. And for me, that takes us back to Shelley and poets being the unacknowledged legislators of the world. And what he's really talking about there, Terry, I know I'm way, way out of depth of it, is the sense that they're also the futurists, the people who look forward, who think, who imagine. And it feels to me there was a wonderful blend in what Carol was doing in terms of thinking forwards because the way the law works, isn't that, is, isn't that flow, is it not? And the Aarhus Convention and all of that, which sounds at one level so dry, is what you need so badly to win some of these battles. You have a question. Yeah, I have a question for Carol. Thank you so much for your presentation. I'm extraordinarily excited about the new legislation, uh, so I will be seeking you later. So I, last year, I studied rights of nature and I came across some very interesting early legislation in the form of constitution of municipalities in, in the United States. The earliest one I found was 2006. It was Ordinance 612 by the uh, Tamaqua Borough in Skalikil, I can't pronounce it, county in Pennsylvania. It was a community's attempt to stop the dumping of toxic material into uh, some disused mines close to their municipality. But it gave residents the right to defend natural communities and ecosystems. So this was in 2006. And then 2008, Ecuador wrote the Pacamama amendments in their constitution to give rights to Mother Nature. And followed all over the world. 
why is it taking so long for the United Kingdom to catch up with this kind of speaking and protecting from nature, not necessarily from who has been harmed by it, you know, which human has been harmed by it, which has always been holding back environmental law, but seeing the rights of nature unto itself. Really interesting question. And um, and I suspect there's probably kind of quite a dry legal answer. And I think there's also quite a kind of a much more sort of spiritual and holistic answer. I think the legal question is very, very simple that we don't have a constitution. And most other countries do have, you know, a formal written constitution, which which often provide people, not, not in all cases, but often do provide people with those rights. And that gives them then the basis to be able to then rely on those rights. And the extent to which those rights are enforced in the courts varies massively. Like Ecuador, places where it, it, it really isn't enforced very much at all. So we don't have rights of nature is... Um, absolutely where we should be going but I think it is too much of a step at the moment I think that's incremental why we decided to try to do something like an environmental rights bill that brings something like a clean and healthy environment which is moving towards rights for nature but isn't isn't going far because we just think at the moment you know it's just simply they just do it and we don't have that formal written constitution that we can put but I think the answer outside of the law is, I think, in terms of why the UK doesn't have that. I just think we seem to have lost any sort of spiritual connection to nature. And, and it's been so lovely to be in this room. I go to a lot of legal conferences, as you can imagine. And, and I am originally a conservationist before I was a lawyer. And I don't get about conservation very much anymore, not least go outside and actually do any of it. But it's been so wonderful to be in this room and to hear people coming from things from different disciplines. And I was almost moved to tears by, by what you're saying in terms of your poetry. But it's almost as though we're embarrassed to talk. You know, I go to a conference and, you know, we, we, we don't acknowledge that side at all. It's just as if we've completely lost that thread. So, you know, I think this has been a brilliant move to try and reconnect some of these things. And in that way, we reconnect the audiences. And it's got to be the way. So, There's a link to that. Should we be should we be scared as we're led to believe we should about the retained law bill? I don't know if anybody else is working on that. I'm not working on it within RSPB. There must be there probably is somebody who is we, working. Green Alliance. I'm sure yeah. one of the trustees is working. And, and yes, we are right to be scared. As I understand it, is there's a kind of a cliff edge, which is at the end of 2023, which is yeah. when all of that new retained law bill is uh, And it's so much, well, obviously, water framework directive uh, regulations, habitats regulations, EIR regulations. So, essentially, everything that we rely on could be out of the window. Now, that's an interesting point about the Harris judgment, which is that you know, great, that particular part of the Habitats Directive might still be directly enforceable in the courts if, if the Habitats Regulations go. But of course, the Habitats Regulations covers much, much more than Article 6.2, all the species protection provisions, all the Habitats Regulations assessment about assessment. So, yeah, it's absolutely, as, I, as I'm not an expert on the detail of it, but as I understand it, it's... it's, it's... Ali. Thank you, Sean. Um... Mine is also a question for Carol, uh, Ali Morse from the Wildlife Trusts. It strikes me when thinking about the Farming Rules for Water case with River Action that the Environment Agency are in quite a difficult position with the Habitats Directive on one side and the guidance on the other. To what extent do you think that's a sort of more symptomatic of a problem within DEFRA? You know, they're really putting in place guidance that's 
putting the Environment Agency in that position? Yeah, that's another really good question. It's nobody in the room that works for DEFRA or the Environment Agency. I mean, I think it's become apparent through the case that there's a bit of an impasse between DEFRA and the Environment Agency on this. And, and I, you know, obviously that this case may flush that out and I hope that it, you know, it will be resolved. But in terms of whether that's a wider problem, I don't know. It's obviously been a very specific problem that's been revealed through this. But yeah, I, I, I don't know whether it is a, is a more systemic issue other than on, on this particular issue. You had a question. Hi, um, you introduced yourself. Uh, sorry, of course. Uh, my name is Sardo Kera. I've worked for an organization called the Good Law Project and it's sister law firm, the Good Law Practice. And we do a lot of work, um, are doing increasing amounts of work on river pollution issues. Um, sorry, it's going to be another question for Carol. Or, you know, I swing from wild despair to optimism on this. My recent reason for being optimistic is the Supreme Court for the first time last week putting it to a water company that their entire business model is based on the statutory breach and that we are all meant to, in their words, just grin and bear it and the courts are just meant to tolerate it, which was a real step change. But I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on whether whether the courts get it, whether they get the wider context. And I know it changes from judge to judge, but are you seeing a turning of the tide? Is there, is there a case for optimism? Really, really terrible things. I find the relationship between the courts and the government is like a predator-prey cycle. And so you have the government, you know, sort of government changes colour and the courts tend to follow. And they're supposed to be independent, completely independent judiciary. But I find that the political climate with a lag does impact the, you know, the reception that you get in the courts. And you're right, it does differ from judge to judge. And we all desperately hope we're going to get the good draw out of the very few judges in the admin court who are sympathetic. But on the whole, I would say the courts are quite a hostile place to be at the moment. And you used to be able to think, we'll go to the High Court, we'll lose. Uh, well, first of all, you think we'll get, we'll get permission quite easily. I don't know whether you know, in judicial review, there's this sort of a two-stage process. You apply to the court, you're given permission on the papers, which means a judge looks at it, doesn't actually have a hearing, and you then have your substantive hearing. And the, the threshold for permission is very low. It's supposed to be you just got a good arguable case. The threshold now for permission is really high. I mean, I don't know whether anybody followed the off-what case that we did for Wild Justice, we had a permission, a permission decision on the paper where a judge said, I can't decide this, it's too complicated, we need to have a hearing to go into it. So we had a hearing, we lost at the High Court stage, we appealed to the Court of Appeal, we had a whole day hearing again in front of the Court of Appeal, and then the judge turned around and said it wasn't arguable. You know, I mean, a two days of hearing and, you know, the threshold for that wasn't even reached. So it's, it's difficult to get permission. And the reception that you get in the admin court and, and the planning court is often pretty hostile. And we're finding at the moment that that is actually not the case. Usually you go to the Supreme Court and you would imagine you get a much more receptive audience there who are a bit more interested in what's actually happening in, in sort of the issues and things like principles of EU law. But that doesn't seem to be the case. But having said that, there's not many cases that go as far as the Supreme Court. So fingers crossed for that one. There's another case going to the Supreme Court in May, uh, which is a case called Finch. It's not. It's probably not sort of relevant for today, but it's about downstream emissions in climate. And again, that's, that's a case which is going to the Supreme Court. We don't get that many environmental cases going, but just have to hope that I think, I don't know, perhaps on a change of government, we might get a slightly more receptive audience again. Uh, it's not a friendly place to be at the moment. Let me, Jane, and then you, Rob. Thank you. Terry, in your presentation, the line that stood out to me and kind of hurt my heart a little bit was it is perfect without us is it even complete without us there's been several references yesterday and today 
to the T word, trespass. And access is something, as you know, that I'm, I'm passionate about. Possibly, Carol, as we've heard quite a few question um, responses from you, I'd like to know what provision there might be in the Environmental Rights Bill for access to that healthy, clean environment. Yes, a right to a healthy, clean environment, but what about our actual access to that? Um, but I'm going to address the question to, to Stuart. How hopeful are you that the Anglian community can embrace much wider access or to these precious habitats that so badly need advocates and guardians and not just advocates and guardians who are anglers? Okay, that's kind of a big question. And I think, and it's one of the reasons in my introduction that I stated that what I said were my views, because they're not necessarily the views, for instance, of my employer, the Piscatorial Society, who like their privacy, they pay for their privacy. But as I said, I I have, I feel awkward now when I'm dealing with trespassers wild swimmers. With young kids these days, I let them fish, basically. If they're fishing, I will say to them to remove themselves to somewhere, ideally off a public footbridge. I have, I'm aware I have got a couple of members in the room here. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so and actually the society has been doing that for some years now. As far as how, did you say how hopeful I would be and I'd be honest, I mean, obviously, Dylan yesterday said about the National Trust that I think one of their reasons for doing what they're doing is to get more people onto the fishery or onto the river. I, this is, this is, this is me answering honestly. I wouldn't be too hopeful at this point. I think I actually did say that actually... Um, gosh, what, what exactly did you said? I say? Inclusion, not exclusion, will help our cause. Yeah, but I think I also said, but I think we're a long. It's a long way off. I think it is a long way off. A bit like all the, you know, the legislation and getting more water and yeah. But I would like to live in a dream world and say yes, it's you know, it's just around the corner. But I don't necessarily believe that it is. You want to come back on this point, Nick? Yeah, well, if I could, yeah. I, yeah. I was really going to ask. Really, just getting back to Stuart on the point that he was making, a lack of optimism. But do you think there is a practical way of resolving the issues of anglers and other, other rivers users so that we can all have access to these wonderful water bodies with a, a degree of reverence and responsibility? Because I don't think necessarily it necessarily requires people marching up and down the riverbanks. You can manage the way of the process of access and um, I know that some other people in the audience who've thought about this who might want to comment so I think it is a fundamentally important issue because of the the point of not you know unless you know something you you can't care about it unless you care about it you can't love it etc uh, absolutely 100% and hey I'll remember this, Nick, having a conversation with you via microphone. But uh, maybe, maybe this isn't a conversation. I'm just answering a question. In fact, the Piscatorial Society, having said that about their privacy, I'm not going to say they would be dragging their heels, but we have got just around the corner, we've got a, a, a project whereby on one of our bits of river, we have plans for an education centre. 
And we are one day a week going to be having youngsters from schools, from agricultural college, and we're going to be building a sustainable education centre on one of our bits of fishery. And so there will be access on one day a week. But that, again, that's, I wouldn't say that's a total pipe dream, but it, that is around the corner. So there are, there are moves afoot, but I don't, I don't see, just to reiterate, I don't see it being fast. Rob. Rob McGovern from the Wild Trout Trust again. It's very pleased to see the picture of fallen tree dipped into the river, but held there with a strong hinge, so it's not going to wash away. In the chalk streams, which are complex artificial systems of high economic value, do you think we can let their little beavers run wild? That's another one of those, that's another one of those questions. I would say, yeah. Well. I have been down to Devon and I have looked at the otter and I have looked at the other, you know, the mystery site that you get blindfolded and twirled around <laughs> many times and then you're taken off to this site in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so I've seen all that stuff and it's absolutely amazing. Look, we don't oh, know until we do it. They are actually, they're in the headwaters of the Wiley now. They're in the Froom. You know, they were in the Froome, they've they've marched over the hill, I think it is, to the headwaters of the Wiley. So I think it's just a matter of time, really, to be honest. And whether that happens quicker than open access, I would say the beavers will be here quicker than the open access. I don't know. This is the fourth conference I've been to this year and the fourth time the beavers have come up. Uh, come up. <laughs> uh, you had a question. Yeah, my, my question is, again, more to Carol, and your work is fascinating and necessary, but it's all about highly trained professional people talking and arguing with highly trained professional people. Now, over the winter, I was one of the 100 people who served on the People's Assembly for Nature, which was part funded by the RSPB. Yeah, I'm sure you know all about this. So my, <laughs> so my question is actually about how what your views might be on involving citizens' assemblies in as a way of strengthening democracy, but also being involved in lawmaking, yeah. and whether you see there's a place for that. Yeah, uh, well, it's fundamental, isn't it? And, and sorry, just going back very quickly to your question, Amy, there is a provision in the bill about access to both green space and biodiversity to sort of cover all the options. But yeah, it, I mean, and that really is what the Arms Convention is all about. It's the first instrument where really you brought together human rights and environmental rights in the same agreement and it, it's fundamental isn't it and the, you know the, the point of those three pillars of the convention is all about empowering people empowering people to get hold of the information they need to be able to check whether decision making is happening in the right way but principally your point about making sure that people can participate in decision making processes and I mean, it's really interesting at the moment, the way it's done is very kind of dry through the planning system and through things like EIA or SEA. But there may be some different mechanisms there that we haven't thought about that should be built in through that about citizens involvement and things, the sort of thing that you were talking about. So it would be really interesting if we could include some of those. What we've done at the moment is just use the very dry stuff that we're kind of doing already. But it would be brilliant to have some more creative and really fundamentally useful stuff in there about how people can really engage. So, yeah, I think it's 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 pivotal. But that, that really is what it's about. It's about actually making sure that you have democracy and proper citizen involvement in environmental matters. I think our final comment stroke question. Robert Westerberg is a, a visitor from Denmark. Thanks for the introduction. 
It's a question and, and a comment to Carol. It seems like the only way we can move forward, not the only, but one of the ways, is through the courts. It's here and it, it's like that in Denmark. And we fortunately have the European Commission and the European Court to go to because governments will always break their feet. But my question is, should we have a permanent sort of a lawyer a firm or lawyers hired by by us in in the chalk new movements or through your organization because it seems that this will be perpetual and and people everywhere are going to the courts to, to demand climate action and and so on uh, but it's costly yeah so could you give some advice on that i cannot like to, to personally thank you as well because the the Aarhus convention was of course signed in denmark so we thank you for your contribution to the Environmental Rights Bill. But your, your question is really, I think, is really it really gets to the heart of the role that the law plays in protecting the environment. And we work with lots of different campaign groups in individual challenges. And we have to be very pragmatic about how successful a legal challenge is likely to be. The figures for the success rates of JR are so low. I don't know whether anybody would like to guess that. Has anybody got a guess of how many cases we take to court? How many do you think we win? 4%. 4% of cases are actually successful if you go all the way through to the High Court. So you might think, well, why, why do it? And we do it because if you really do it effectively, you nest your legal action within a wider campaign. So, you know, you use it as a way. It's really a tool, you know, writing to the government when you're initiating legal action, they have to respond to your letter. They have to provide you with information under the duty of candor. They have to provide you with the, the minutes and the presentations that went between ministers when they made a decision in a way that they don't if you don't take, take that legal action. But you have to realise that it's very often not going to actually win the sort of war for you. So, you know, alongside that, the attention that the judicial review can bring in the press, with public awareness and getting all the information from inside of the government, it's, it's then all that sort of wider awareness, awareness, awareness raising and campaigning that comes with it. And in that way, you often then obviously win your campaign, even though you've lost your legal action. So, you know, we lost the off-walk case. I didn't know it was wild, wild justice. They lost the off-walk case. But as a result of that, off-walk started doing a lot of enforcement actions that it wouldn't have done otherwise because a light was shone on them and you get some scrutiny that you wouldn't have otherwise got. So, yes, it's a really powerful tool. It's not the be-all and end-all. But I think, you know, yes, there's definitely a role, a, a role for lawyers in that and, and there are quite a few you know, firms who are active in that area, who do claim an environmental work and are just as motivated to get on with it as well. And, and there's lots of organisations with lawyers inside them too. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's important. Thank you. A comment from Terry? I don't mind standing here in silence because these are very important. Questions. I'd like to just quote two writers to finish. On the question of rights for nature, I want to say a word for John Muir, who Roderick Nash the author of American History of Rights of Nature, says was the first person to speak of the rights of alligators and snakes, which John Muir said are not fallen and depraved creatures, as his Scottish puritanical upbringing had brought him to believe. Uh, and he writes about this in a, a book called a thousand-mile walk to the Gulf, which is the journal of his journey walking from Canada down to the south to avoid being conscripted into the Civil War as a Scottish immigrant. 
and he is reflecting in the graveyard where he's bivying out. The Bonaventure graveyard is an amazing passage about the way in which we deprive our children of an awareness of the death process and the essential role of decay in nature in our preservation of their innocence in our education system. So look up John Muir and A Thousand Mile Walk to the Gulf. I've edited the complete works of John Muir. And at the moment, the eight major books are in e-books, very cheaply available. A Thousand Mile Walk to the Gulf. But I just want to finish with a word about education. How many people here had heard of the name Jeremy Hooker before my talk today? Mark knew that it was coming. Ah, terrific. I don't know whether Jeremy Hooker is taught in the schools of Hampshire, uh, where surely this itch in water sequence ought to be available to kids. And I'm thinking of Ted Hughes writing, as Mark says, within hearing of children, that is writing not for children, but for adults and children. And he says that writing for children is nature's chance to correct culture's error. <laughs> I just leave you with that thought. I leave you with three thoughts, which is one line from each of them, poetic, pragmatic and hopeful. Terry's was one drop in which it's nature sings. The second was from Carol, which is a lack of resources, not a reason for an action by the agency. <laughs> and Stuart's, which was the hopeful upturn. Our rivers are still half full, not half empty. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Owned by Everyone podcast, one in a series of eight recorded at the Conference on the Wonder, Plight and Future of Chalk Streams held in Cambridge at the end of March 2023. Our conference wouldn't have been possible without generous funding from Pembroke College, Cambridge, the University of Cambridge's School of Arts and Humanities Impact Fund and the Cambridge Conservation Initiative. So we want to thank them too. Now, go back to ownedbyeveryone.org and swim in the pool of water resources of all kinds that you'll find there.